This is The Bittersweet Life. If you're new to the show, thanks for joining us. I'm Katie Sewell. I've been in the radio business for nearly 20 years, mostly working for public radio in the United States. In 2013, I quit my stable job and I moved to Rome for just a year. That's where this podcast begins. And if you're new, don't be afraid to start at the beginning. I'd hate for you to miss out on the adventure. That adventure might inspire you to do something crazy, like quit your stable job and move to Rome for just one year. And my co-host is Tiffany Parks. She's a writer and author of Midnight in the Piazza. And she's also an expat who moved to Rome over a decade ago with the determination to stay whatever it took. She's also my childhood friend. I met her on the school bus in the sixth grade. I hope you like the show, and if you do, tell a friend and take the time to write us a review. Now, on with the show. Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Hello, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. And today, we're going to talk about expectations. The things that you should be doing versus the things that you are doing. Sort of. (laughs) Sort of we're going to talk about that. Or the things that other people think and tell you that you should be doing. Exactly. Which I guess this show sort of dances around that all the time, but we decided to focus on it specifically. So a couple weeks ago, we did an episode called Plateau based on a listener email. And after that, she wrote us back a long note explaining some of the background of things, which we're not going to share with you. But she did say one little tiny thing in that email that gave me the idea for this show. Just because she had talked about fear in a way that I hadn't heard anyone talk about fear before. So Tiffany, as our designated reader on this show, I'll let you set it up and read it. Giovanna wrote to us about some issues that she was having going into her second year as an expat in Ischia, an island off the coast of Naples. And she's having a hard time particularly because she felt like she'd hit a plateau and she was no longer improving, expanding, you know, she just, she hit a plateau. We responded to her letter a couple weeks ago So in her response, among other things, she says, the fear that I felt the first year and had to work through was that I was doing something that I wasn't allowed to do. And I could hear these voices from the past and almost like they would be angry if I succeeded or at least happy if I failed. They would have been happy that they were right. But I kind of worked through that. And even if these voices come back from time to time, I realize I'm not responsible for the decisions that they had made. By they, I think she's talking about her family members. Right. It was a different time back then, and I'm making decisions now for what's right for me. So what she's talking about is she is of Italian descent, and her parents were immigrants from Italy who moved to the United States, and so were her aunts and uncles. And when she decided to move back to Italy, um, she was given a bit of a hard time from her family. They didn't understand why she was moving over there. You know, I mean, you have to think about that generation. I mean, coming to America from Italy several decades ago was a totally different thing. And she had moved back to the island that her mother grew up on. So it wasn't only that she reversed it by going back to Italy and maybe moving to a big town. She had moved right back into the small towns that they had left from, which felt like they disapproved of it that that was not what they wanted for their child. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. Anyway, but I I liked that as a concept because, I mean, how many things do we do in life 
based on like what other people would want us to be doing. And I, I sometimes even subconsciously or the messages we received growing up or the cultural norms, basically. Mm-hmm. I guess I was also thinking about it because I just recently was in Seattle for a few days and I went out to meet up with a friend of mine that I hadn't seen for a while. We were in college together and we got exactly the same degree. So we were both creative nonfiction writing majors and we were in lots of classes together because when you're in that tight of a major, (laughs) you're traveling around with the same people. But I hadn't seen him for four or five years and we were catching up on our lives and we're both the same age. We're both in our early 40s and he was in the middle of a divorce, just the beginning stages of a divorce. And he had bought himself a motorcycle and stuff. (laughs) And he just laughed and he said, I always thought if there was going to be a midlife crisis, it wouldn't come now. It's like I woke up from a script. I got out of school. I I got a job. I met a woman. I got married. We had a kid. You know, we had bought a house. And now we're getting a divorce. And I've looked up and been like, huh, what did I used to like to do before all this? And he used to always perform in a band. He used to write a lot, all of which he hadn't done anymore. So he said, I'm just kind of taking the baby steps into getting back in a band and trying to write again. I I don't know. It just reminded me of that because he's like, I almost just jumped into whatever the next step of life was supposed to be. And then now all of a sudden, it's all not going to work out. And I don't know what to do with myself. I wonder if that's like what midlife crises are, not necessarily chasing youth, but maybe it's just, okay, what is it that I actually like? I'm going to try to do more of that. Yeah, hold on a second. I guess I was just doing what I thought I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And don't you remember that a little bit from before you were married? I remember this too. And now I think, how strange. I just got to that point where I was like, well, I better figure out if I'm going to get married sometime soon. I have to be honest with you, Katie. I I never had that feeling. Yeah. Nothing is coming to mind that I ever felt like this is what I should be doing. Mm. And I don't know if that's because I'm naturally rebellious, which I'm not really that rebellious. Like I was not a rebellious teenager. No, you were like the full on opposite of rebellious teenager. Well, I would say I was lucky. I had a mother who was like, whatever you want to do, just do that. I didn't need to be rebellious because I was allowed to do what I wanted to do. And I don't mean like I was allowed to drink beer all weekend. It was like, you want to study music? You want to go to a conservatory? Get a degree that will basically ensure that you never have a job? Sure, go (laughs) do it. Well, what if you had wanted to drink beer all weekend? Well, that probably would not have been okay. But I was allowed to drink before I was an adult. When we went to France, everyone was drinking. You know, I was 14, I think. And my mom was like, sure, have a glass of champagne. That's fine. Maybe because she trusted me. She knew I wasn't going to get drunk. There you go, parents. Give your kids tons of freedom and they'll end up being goody two-shoes like me. (laughs) Maybe. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I never felt the pressure to get married. Never. Well, I didn't feel the pressure to get married. I just sort of felt like, oh, I don't even know. It's so funny to think about it now. Being aware of my age, being aware of the fact that I actually thought life would be more fun with a partner. Well, I do think life can be more fun with a partner. At least more stable with a partner. Well, I think it's both. I mean, it's not necessarily true. I think life can be more fun with a partner if it's the right partner for you. But that's not what we're talking about, though. We're talking about like what you think other people think you should be doing. Right. Not what you think you should be doing to make yourself more happy, but what you think other people think you should be doing. Well, here's here's a question, just to get off the marriage. So some of what I think 
Giovanna is talking about in that email is about what her parents hoped for her mm-hmm. and the fear that somehow she's letting them down by making this particular choice. And that's more about what her parents' hopes and expectations were for her than what is the reality of what she wants for herself, obviously. But as a mom of Aurelio, mm-hmm. when he was a baby, do you have any recollection of sitting when he was sort of an unformed, you didn't know anything about his personality, he was just a baby? Mm-hmm. Did you sit there and imagine things for him? Like, I wonder what he's going to be like. I wonder, I hope he gets to do this. I hope he gets to do that. Did you have any of those kind of expectations or dreams? It's almost more like dreams than expectations in some cases. I still have hopes and dreams for him. I mean, I think all parents do. I can't remember anything specifically when he was a tiny baby. I was just trying to keep him alive (laughs) (laughs) and trying to like get a little bit of sleep. But I think as a parent, you have to be really careful that you don't put your hopes and dreams onto your child. And that's where... Giovanna's parents, I don't know, but it sounds like, and maybe her aunts and uncles, kind of did the wrong thing. Because what's right for you does not necessarily mean that's what's right for your children. And it's it's a classic thing, because parents, they see their children as an extension of themselves, which is totally wrong. You shouldn't do it. But all parents do, to a certain extent. Either you think, well, I went to university, so my child has to go to university. Or you think... I never had the chance to go to university, so I want my child to go to university. Either way, you say, I want this for them. But the truth is, it might not be what they want. It might not be what is right for them. And and you have to kind of detach yourself. And it's a bit of an ego thing, too. I mean, I think all parents want to be like, my child's going to Harvard, or my child this, my child that. And if you really, really stop and think about it, part of that is because you want what's best for them. And you think, okay, if they go to Harvard, they're going to get a better job, they're going to have a better life and da, 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 da. But part of that, you just want to say your kid goes to Harvard. Admit it, right? Well, it's partly about you being a great parent. Yeah. If your kid sort of toes a line and ends up being a genius. Yeah. Then you did something right. Exactly. I mean, we're not there yet. We're not at that stage of even you know thinking about college yet. But when I see like that he's really good at X, Y, or Z, I'm totally proud and like, <laughs> my kid loves to read. Like, I'm proud of that fact. But you have to be careful because you don't want your ego to get too caught up in the identity of your child because he's his own person. And it's not fair. It's not right. I'm just kind of speaking in general terms here. It's not fair to put pressure on your child to the extent that they don't live their own life because they're trying to please you and they're trying to do what you think is right for them because it's not, as a parent, it's not your life. I know, but do you think that if if Aurelio was completely rejecting of whatever the lifestyle you and Claudio had, as in, let's just say, he just goes off into a wild other tangent. I don't even know what it would be. Who knows? Can you actually see not intervening or not, taking it as a personal judgment that you somehow failed? Look, this is going to sound really cheesy, but it's what I aspire to. I aspire to the belief and the feeling that if he is happy, then I've done my job. Him being happy is the most important thing. Not just happy now as a a sweet little three-year-old, but if when he is an adult and he has X job and does X for his hobby and whatever... If that makes him happy, then that is success, right? Isn't that really what life success is? I don't know. I mean, other people would argue that there's no way any person is ever happy for their entire life. That happiness is a thing that comes and goes. And 
contentedness, maybe confidence, or who knows what else would be something that's a little more lasting. I guess what I mean is if he grows up to be a garbage man, but that he loves that, then he succeeded. Yeah. What if he turns out to be like a Casanova? That's different. It's one thing to like not do what I value. It's another thing to do things that are hurtful to other people. Yes. But I think we're going off on a tangent. Rein us in, please. I'm going to rein us back in with a little story. So when I first moved to Italy, actually, I hadn't even moved here yet. I was here visiting. I was in a wedding of one of my distant relatives. And I was hanging out with some other distant relatives because there was a bunch of family things going on for the wedding. It was this couple, and they middle-aged couple, and they had these two sons. And the sons were about my age, maybe a little bit younger. And I was in my mid-20s, so they were probably in their early 20s. And I was talking to one of them, and he said, I can't believe you're moving to Italy. Like, I want to move to America, which is a common thing that all expats, American expats who can move to Italy here. They hear, why would you move here? We want to move there. God, I want to move to America. And I said, why don't you? And he said, no, I'll live with my parents until I get married, of course. It sounded like I was talking to someone whose life was predestined and they're like, this is what's going to happen. Like when I talked to this boy in India who basically said, yeah, I'm going to marry the person my parents pick for me. There was no question. And he was fine with it. And so was this kid. He was fine with it. He didn't say like, oh, I wish I could go to America, but I can't. I have to stay and live with my parents. It was like, no, I'm going to live with my parents until I get married. That's what Italians do. And of course, not all Italians are going to do that. And there are Italians who are going to break away from the mold and who are going to become expats or just move somewhere else in Italy or just move out, period. But there's so many who just do what is expected of them and do what they feel that they should do. I wonder if those people are happier or not. I know that they've said that like people who have arranged marriages are generally happier in their marriages. Mm-hmm. Isn't that weird? No, I mean, it, in some ways it makes sense. It's if, if it sort of is just the way of it, Yeah. then you don't stress about if it should be the way of it. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's something about expectations. There's some famous wisdom about expectations. Expectations are what make you unhappy. Mm-hmm. Or choice, choice sometimes. Or choice, sometimes choice. If you go out expecting to do something and you don't do it, that day might feel like it's been ruined. Whereas you might have had a really good time if you hadn't been expecting to do something that you didn't do. I see that with my son all the time. Like if I tell him, okay, we're going to go out and we're going to go do this thing. And let's say we get there and it's closed. He's going to be totally devastated. And no matter what else we do that day, he'll be upset. Whereas if I don't say anything, if I just say, let's just go and see what happens, he's going to have a good time. Mm-hmm. That's interesting. So I think it's the same for us. I don't know. I find it's the same for myself. I'm very subject to like expectations. I get my hopes up about things and I plan for them and I want them to happen. And when they don't happen, I find myself very disappointed. So you're more uh, subject to the, your own expectations than to the expectations of others? I don't know about that, but yeah, I think so. I guess I would say I think so. I never went with the flow. I always kind of did what was unexpected. And I don't necessarily think I did that on purpose. Maybe sometimes. (laughs) But um, I just don't really ever feel like I I sat and like considered what other people expected from me. I mean, family mostly. Would my mother rather that I, I went to an Ivy League school and studied to become a professor? Like I just never thought about what my mother wanted for me. I never thought, would my mother rather have me be living close to home? I just didn't. Maybe I'm just incredibly selfish. (laughs) Well, you know, one of the things I 
hardly ever talk about on this show is that I'm a preacher's kid. I, we don't talk about that. And I, I kind of want to talk about it less about religion and more about what it's actually like to be a preacher's kid. Yeah. There's a name for us. We're called PKs. Not because you can't say preacher's kid and because it's so long, you just can't get it out or something. I think they call them PKs because they're like a tribe of people. Like there are people who have been through something that's particularly different where you have certain things in common it's interesting because while you recognize another PK or you'll say, oh, you PK too or whatever, you still don't kind of talk about the real experience of what it means to be one. Is it uh, kind of like being in a sorority? No. Um, no. What I mean by that is you have like a shared experience that people who are not in the same experience can't understand. Um, I think you could understand it. It's a shared experience that you, even you as a tribe don't really talk much about. I don't know if other PKs are out there. I don't really feel like we ever really talk in any kind of serious way about it. We just sort of have a quiet camaraderie about it. But I mean, I don't think it's something that people can't understand. It's not like being in a sorority because in a sorority, everybody sort of plays their part. Different personalities would come together and each play their role. As a preacher's kid, you are the focus of an entire congregation. Not that they're only thinking about you, but that, say, you have a group of 400, 800, however big, group of people who all know who you are, but you don't necessarily know who all of them are. Or, in my case, I did know who a lot of them were. The thing that's interesting about it is that it's both lovely because you get introduced to all sorts of people and it's a network that other people don't have, like a built-in network. But it's also that you're supposed to be an example. The minister in a church is the person who has the answers. Mm -hmm. The person who knows better and is like helping you live a better, more meaningful life. And so the preacher's kid is looked to as the example of the kid that comes from a person who can give that kind of advice, right? So if you're at all different or imperfect, as we all are, or you make something that would be considered a very bad choice off of the track, you can't let those things be known because you're an example of what people are supposed to be or aspire to, or at least your parents are, if that makes sense. You're not necessarily, but your parents are. Well, yeah, I mean, whatever you do is going to reflect poorly on your father. Well, I mean, he's the one that's supposed to have it together. Mm -hmm. So if the preacher's kid is smoking and people <laughs> find out, it's not like it's the end of the world. In some cases, people would be like, oh, how great. They're flawed too. But it also is one of those things that is not something that you, you should be doing. And so in general, you keep those other parts of yourself a secret. Yeah. This is kind of off subject, but I wonder if your mother had some of those similar pressures as a preacher's wife. Oh, I'm sure she did. And she would have to tell us. But I think that it also fit her personality. And tell me, mom, if I'm speaking out of turn there, because my mom listens to the show. But my father actually was not raised going to church on a regular basis. So hmm. my mom actually came from a more ritualized Christian home where the church was a big part of their life. My dad's mom was, my grandmother was very spiritual, but she was not a, a person who attended church on a regular basis. Hmm. So it was actually my mother who introduces my father to going to church regularly, in part because he wanted to date her, you know, and she was sort of... <laughs> On the, I'm the only dating a man that goes to church. <laughs> Good for you, mom. 
my father's never been sort of along those rigid pastoral lines. He's not like that dictator preacher from Footloose, you know, he's, he's no. a super liberal, laid back man. So I almost think like the expectations of the church and that wanting to be in the choir, wanting to help people out, wanting to be part of a Bible study was also kind of in my mother's DNA. Like, I think that's a very important part of her life. Mm -hmm. And I don't know that my parents ever really worried about what it would do to us as the children. I think that you think in general, it's a, it's a room full of well-meaning people. What could be wrong about that? I don't know. I, I wrote down this thing because I was trying to figure out, could I explain it? But I have this book my sister bought me called The Preacher's Kid. That's basically written by a preacher's kid who's trying to get at what some of these weird issues that we have are. Can I read it? Should I read it? Read it. Okay. So he writes, his name is Barnabas Piper. And I know nothing about him. He could be an extremely conservative zealot for all I know. So hang with that. He says, being so well-known in a church circle has its advantages. It can open doors to certain opportunities and provide a feeling of being liked. But there is a flip side to being known this way. The more people know about a person, the more they think they know them. He's saying, like, my father preaches about me. You see me all the time, so. You think you know me. So, the more people know about a person, the more they think they know them. That is to say, the more that they assume about him. As a PK, it can be tremendously difficult to get from known of to known because of these assumptions. <laughs> and I think that's pretty true. <laughs> that's very true. Feeling like everybody knows you, but then feeling like maybe nobody knows the real me. It's a duality. You're two different personality types. And in my case, it's they're not like that far flung. The person I am at my parents' church that knows all these people, I am that person. I'm authentically with you, but mm -hmm. you know, I have another side, a more adventurous, less conservative, certainly less acceptable side <laughs> that is the other part of me, you know? And I think as an adult, it's like this big journey of bringing those two sides together and not being like, I'm this person here, I'm that person here, I'm this person with Tiffany, I'm that person with Suzanne, you know? But saying, no, I am all of these people in one, person. Does that make sense? Yeah. I know your father's retired. Are you often in that community still today? Or is that kind of in your past now? I mean, not much. And now when I am in it, I like being around it. Because it is also that thing about having people who care about you more than you would be cared about normally. That quest to be popular or whatever <laughs> that people have. So now when I run into the people who were in the church, it's fun for me to see what they're up to and to have them ask questions about me. I think it's much more pressure when you're like a kid in this situation, when you're a teenager in particular. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say. My dad was pretty smart as a teenager. Like I was really feeling the pressure of this when I was 18 years old. And I must have either said something or he caught on to it. But I do remember him saying at one point that I didn't need to come anymore, that I could take a break that was incredibly important at that time. I think I was sort of fracturing under the pressure of it when I was 18 or 17 years old. Yeah, I can imagine. You know, it's funny, just like thinking back to like when we were growing up, I was raised in a pretty religious household, at least my father's side. My father was, was quite religious and I didn't go to church that often. I mean, I always went to church when I was at my dad's, but my mom was a little bit less of a church goer. We'd go occasionally. But I went to Christian school, Yeah, as you know. I went to a, a pretty conservative Protestant 
school, Bible studies and Christian studies was part of the curriculum. Mm-hmm. And you, one of my closest friends, although you, we didn't go to the same school, you were a PK. We never, ever, I mean, not, not that like teenagers talk about religion, but we never talked about it. Never. Even talked about what we believed. Mm-hmm. To me, you never seemed, I mean, I knew your dad was a preacher, but you never seemed like you were the child of a preacher. You weren't quote unquote religious. I still to this day don't know what you truly believe. Ooh. Well, I think that's a really personal thing. And so I don't generally ask people. It's one thing to be like, culturally, what religion are you? You know, like, are you Jewish? Are you Catholic? Are you Protestant? Whatever. Mm-hmm. But I just have never asked you. And I, I have no idea. And I'm not going to ask you on the air. But <laughs> it's funny to me that two people who were as close as we were and still are, who both came from these religious households, you in the church and me in my school, were very much in the Christian Protestant world we never, ever talked about it together. Well, maybe that's because when we were together, it was our escape from that world. Perhaps, perhaps. I mean, we were in theater together, which is about as big an escape from any world you can get (laughs) because you're literally (laughs) pretending to be somebody else. Which we did outside of the theater too, as we've discussed. (laughs) Yes, for hours on end. So yeah, I think that that is true. And I don't know, I think it's interesting. I think we're influenced by it in different ways too. I think... Being a PK is almost different than going to the conservative Christian school that you went to. That's why when I think of you in high school, I actually think of you as being much more conservative than me. Well, I was back then. And maybe that's because being a PK is like a social pressure. It is religious. Of course, we talked about God and religion in our homes and stuff. But it's also a social pressure. It's a it's a pressure to perform a perfect character in a way, mm-hmm. which is different than being surrounded and absorbed in a Christian culture all week long, you know, throughout high school. So it's very different. I can imagine. And expectations, which is what I was thinking about, those expectations that you carry with you not to let people down. We were just at that church when I was in Seattle. And one of the things that's so funny about it is I got that super prominent job working at the Seattle Public Radio Station and people loved it. And I loved it. But you know, people loved hearing my name on the radio all the time. So now when I run into different people from the congregation who sort of knew me when I was on the radio, they always ask, Oh, so what are you up to now? And I'll say, Oh, I'm in San Francisco. I'm, I'm writing. I've done this podcast for five years and stuff. And they will say, oh, yeah, that's great. So are, do you still work for NPR in Seattle? And I'll say, oh, yeah, yeah, I do. I'm a fill-in host for them. And uh, so whenever I'm in town, you know, I might pop on. And they'll say, oh, do you know when we're going to get to hear you next? And like, this is such a minor part of my job now. I love that I'm still associated with that. But it's so funny because, of course, that's the part where they're like... I know her, you know, it's sort of, <laughs> I'm on once every four months now, and I have no idea when you're going to hear me next, but I hope you're listening. It's so funny. The expectations, what expectations you feel and what you don't. These people wanted the best for me. And so the fact that I ended up prominently on the radio station they love, wow, one of the best outcomes you can imagine from that kid they watched growing up. So let's not talk about her having a podcast. <laughs> well, not what everybody thinks is the best thing for you is going to be the best thing for you it's hard it's hard it's like those stories you know you hear those stories all the time like motivational speeches and stuff and it's like I was a trader on Wall Street and I was making 10 million dollars a year and I had a light bulb moment and I decided to quit my job and move to Bali and become a yoga teacher 
major step down, major loss of prestige, but that's what makes them happy. I mean, that's obviously a kind of stereotypical story, but mm-hmm. it's whatever makes you happy. It's like what I was saying about my son. It's, uh, okay, maybe you can't be happy all the time, but there are some things that are going to make you happier than others. Yeah, it's the wake up moment. It's what she's writing about in that email when you realize those are the choices that they made for them. Yeah. And I need to figure out what the choices I want to make for me are. Yeah. Yeah. I want to tell one more story. It's not my story. It's a story from a friend of mine who used to be a journalist writing for a newspaper and then went off to write books instead. But when he was in the paper regularly writing columns, he sort of had that same thing where everybody in town or friends of the family and stuff would be like, oh, I saw your article in the paper. When he decides not to work for the paper anymore, still writing, but writing books rather than being a journalist anymore you know, he disappears from the paper. And he he has this very funny story where he runs into a guy at a mall that some guy from town and he just says, Oh, um, are you not writing for the paper anymore? And he said, I'm gonna ruin the story. I think actually, at this point, his first book had been published, actually gotten something out into the world. But this guy's like, Yeah, I never I never see you in the paper anymore. What are you doing with yourself? And he said that he just happened to be standing next to an Orange Julius. And he says, oh, I work at that Orange Julius now. (laughs) You do? You didn't want to be a journalist anymore? And he said, well, you know, I'm kind of a manager over there. And it's just less expectations. I'm really enjoying it. I'm really enjoying it. (laughs) Oh, well, that's interesting. Well, congratulations then. I'm glad you're enjoying your time at the Orange Julius. And of course, after the guy leaves, he's like, does he not know that I'm I'm joking, you know, obviously. <laughs> and apparently he didn't because he goes to like some high school reunion later and a couple people were like, oh, I heard you're working at the <laughs> Orange Julius. <laughs> oh my God. No, I'm not. I'm, I'm writing books now. <laughs> I've decided to do nothing that you expect me to do anymore. Yeah, well, it's funny, people's reaction. I think that people don't know how to respond to something like that. Yeah, it's sort of like an Italian being like, why in the world would you work for less wages and live in this country when you could be in America on Wall Street making millions. Honestly, it's not even that. It's here in Italy. I know that when the time comes that I quit my job, which will eventually happen, people are going to be, when I say people, I mostly mean my my (laughs) (laughs) father-in-law. He is not going to understand why I would quit that job. And if his son ever quits his job, that will be even more unexplainable because my husband works for the Vatican and working for the Vatican has a certain amount of a cachet in Italy. It's kind of like if you work for the White House. I mean, it's not like working for the White House, but it's kind of like that. It's kind of like even if your job is quite simple, it's still important because you're working for the White House or if you're working for the Queen or something. It's the same thing, really, the Vatican. So even though my husband doesn't have like a super fancy job or anything, it's still prestigious because of where he works. Yeah. And there's a certain number of perks and stuff. And of course, you know, the lifetime contract, which is the big Italian thing. Like everybody wants that lifetime contract. And once you get that lifetime contract, you never leave that job. I've almost bought into this myself. Yeah. I mean, you've got one. I've got one, but I've also been there for a long time, longer than I ever thought I would be there. And I just know that when the day comes that I leave that job, it's going to be like me saying, well, actually, I'm working at the Orange Julius. It's going to be the equivalent of. I'm almost looking forward to seeing his face, but on, the, <laughs> but on the other hand, I'm terrified. I don't want to like have to deal with that moment. Not that I care that much what my father-in-law thinks, but you know, a certain amount. He already doesn't get half the stuff that I do. It's just, why would you give up a job like that? It's not just any lifetime contract. You're a writer. You're a working writer. You know, why would you leave that job? And 
I'm not even making very much money. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like I'm giving up the seven, eight figure Wall Street job. Yeah. Italians have an even lower standard. <laughs> what about your boss? Will he be equally surprised? I don't think he will be equally because he's worked with a lot of foreigners because since it's an English language publication, the number one requirement of my job is that you have to be a native English speaker. So everyone who's had my job before me has either been, you know, American or Irish or British or something like that, Canadian. As you know, we're a little bit different from Italians and we tend to move on a little bit more quickly. I think I've had my job longer than anyone else has held my position. I think he's actually probably surprised that I'm still there. (laughs) I think he probably, if I had to guess, he believes that I'm there for the true reasons that I am there, which is that I have a child, I have a mortgage, I'm married to an Italian, so I've become a bit Italianized. The true reasons. Yeah. And it is a job that's in the field that you want to be in. So it It feels hard to leave it for that reason. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Not that I'm like writing my resignation letter at the moment. (laughs) It's just probably going to happen eventually. You're starting to feel the pull of wanting to do something different. Yeah. I get that. Or just wanting to devote my time more to my true passions, my more specific passions. Writing and podcasting. Exactly. (laughs) Writing books. Writing books, not articles. Yes. Get Tiffany's book. It's out now. Midnight in the Piazza. Yeah, pick it up, people. Your kids will like it. You might like it, too. By the way, I just ordered it the other day from my local bookstore. Did you? And when I ordered it, because it wasn't on the shelf, she said, oh, we usually carry this. We just don't have it. Aww. Which I thought was nice. I hope she ordered more than one, then. I ordered it because... We did a giveaway of your book mm-hmm. one such time. I think we've done a couple of giveaways. And one time to save time, I sent my copy oh. to, <laughs> to the person. <laughs> and Derek's like, I was in the middle of reading that. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> I'll buy another one. And so I've been meaning to do it forever. It's supposed to officially arrive tomorrow. So he'll be oh. able to start again tomorrow. Yay. But did I sign your copy? No, I didn't have a signed copy. Okay. No, because I right, got it good. over here and I didn't bring it to you. So okay. one of these days. Well, I'll make sure to sign that the next time I see you. Yeah. The next time I'm in San Francisco. Or Seattle or wherever we happen to be where we overlap. <laughs> All right. Well, we should leave it there. And until next time, do what you want. Not what you should. Exactly. Should be doing. And until next time, this is The Bittersweet Life. I'm Katie Sewell. I'm Tiffany Parks. Join us again. Bye. Thanks to Lori Lee Elliott for her help managing The Bittersweet Life on YouTube and to Sarah Johnson for her consultation. Our logo is made by Jody Rick at the Lost Laboratory with painting assistance by our muse, Caravaggio. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Just search for The Bittersweet Life Podcast. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. That way we're here for you every week, both on Monday and now on Thursday. And if you review us on Apple Podcasts, we'll be grateful for you. Send us your topic ideas, questions, and voice memos. We're at bittersweetlife at mail.com or at the contact us page at thebittersweetlife.net. <laughs>